Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to the diversity and inclusion in veterinary medicine um, and provides AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. So my name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill. I'm the Chief Diversity Officer here at AAVMC, and I am really excited about today's show. I'm excited about all of my shows, and all of them are special to me, but I'm really excited about today's show. It's been a while in the making. So May is considered Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And while um, Asian American students, um, uh, veterinary students, are one of the fastest growing populations um, in in our applicant pool and in our student um, enrollment, we still recognize that AAPI individuals are woefully underrepresented in the profession. And so um, today we're going to talk a bit about that. And we're also going to kind of overlay gender um, as a part of this discussion. It's really key. And so we know that we know things like that women um, tend to trail behind um, men in academia for any number of reasons, I'm sure some of which we'll get into today. But the other thing that kind of maybe complicates things, I'm really interested to, to hear my guests talk about this, but um, Asian is not really a race. It's an ethnicity and it's a construct ethnicity as they all are, right? So um, AAPI is considered, um, it is a construct. It's only been around for about 40 years and it includes, I think at current count, about 48 different countries. That's a lot of people to go under one. (laughs) That's a lot of people. Um, and you know, and that di- diaspora is pretty large, um, and so as we would expect it to be. So um, we're going to talk a bit about how specifically Asian American women um, are experiencing um, working in academic veterinary medicine. And to do that today, I am very excited to welcome my guests, Dr. Catherine Fogelberg, Dr. Tina Tran, and Dr. Jing Yang Chan. Doing that again because I messed it up, even though I tried to get it right before. <laughs> With apologies, Dr. Jin Yin Tan. Yes. <laughs> All right. See, we gotta get we gotta work on that. Okay, thank you for your graciousness. I really appreciate that. So, as is the custom on our show, I like to have my guests self-introduce. Jin Yang, why don't you go first? Sure. My name is Jin Yin Tan. I go by she, her, hers. I'm an associate professor of teaching at University of Calgary, which is also in the traditional territories of the people of Treaty 7, region in Southern Alberta, Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. I'm an equine internal medicine specialist and I have my MBA. I am a 2005 Cornell grad and spent 14 years in the U.S., um, owned my own practice in upstate New York before I came to Calgary about eight years ago. And here I chair the clinical skills program at U of C. Great, great. Welcome to the show, Tina. Hi, uh, Tina Tran. My pronouns are she, her, hers. 
And uh, my background is largely small animal general practice, a little bit in shelter medicine, uh, did a lot of associate work for the first half of my career, and then transitioned into academia, teaching at a community college vet tech program for a couple of years, joining the faculty then at Purdue University as their vet tech program director, and then um, have for the past three years have been uh, working remote, even pre-COVID, it was a remote position as an associate professor of practice, helping to support and build our clinical year program, which is a distributive model for rotations. Um, I think that's all I have. Yep. And last but certainly not least, Catherine. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having us. Uh, so I'm Catherine Fogelberg. My background, I actually spent 10 years in the military, started off as a musician and uh, enlisted, and then uh, got a scholarship to go back to school, finish up my, my undergraduate degree, and come back on active duty as a commissioned officer. Uh, my intent was to come back on as a veterinarian, but I did not get into vet school. So I ended up having to pay back my time. And I was in the medical services corps for four years and then went to vet school afterwards. Uh, did discover a love for education specifically while I was on active duty. So completed my master's in educational leadership before I got off of active duty. Um, completed my PhD in education in 2014, but started my academic career teaching public health. So that is definitely one of my my first loves. Um, ended up at LMU as their initial director for their Center for Innovation in Veterinary Education and Technology, where I launched the Master of Veterinary Education program, and then was fortunate enough to be um, offered the position of the Associate Dean for Professional Programs here at Virginia Tech, uh, the Virginia Maryland College of Veterinary Medicine, which is where I currently am. Wow. So I just want to acknowledge just how amazing you all are and I, what I'm hearing and, and you know, I, I always love my guests, but but what I'm also hearing is that you all have really just been at the forefront of a lot of different programs that you're starting all along your career. And that's just really um, speaks to uh tenacity to um you know how amazing you are but also what we're missing when we don't really think about diversity right um if you weren't there yes yes somebody else might have done it but might have it's not a sure thing right and so this is one of the reasons why you know um at AAVMC we're just so committed to DEI so Let's jump into our conversation. So, um, so we collect some data um, every three years or so about race and ethnicity of our faculty. And according to our data, the percentage of um, Asian faculty um, from North America, right? So I want to include Canada here from North America um, is fairly small. Um, and then when we look at women faculty, it's very, very small. So, so um, Jin Yang, why don't you tell us what you think? Um, you know, why is that? You know, for me, I think it might have to do with the ability for Asian Americans to succeed in large organizations. So as an Asian American Canadian female, when I see an older white male succeeding and leading an organization, or even a white female succeeding and leading an organization, it doesn't necessarily make me think as an Asian female that I can succeed at that organization. So we see this in the health professions. In human medicine, Asian Americans make up about 20% 
of the medical students and the medical profession at large, mm-hmm. but only about 10% of that full-time faculty professors, you know, kind of higher level department chairs and med schools are Asian Americans. And then we see this actually in other sectors. We looked, you know, this got us curious. We started kind of looking at what this is like in different sectors. And it turns out Asian women are half as likely as white women to hold an executive position. They make the least progress in their careers relative to education and experience compared to any other race. And clearly structural racism is playing a role, you know, in inhibiting Asian Americans from getting to faculty positions or even higher positions across professions. So across, you know, law, business, you name it. Um, And basically the term bamboo ceiling, which is part of the name of this podcast has been coined to reflect the barriers that Asian Americans face in the workplace. So that reflects the fact that there's a concept out there that Asians are really good workers, not necessarily good leaders, a view that we are smart, hardworking. It's a good thing if we're easy to manage, but we are not necessarily praised for being bold leaders. Mm -hmm. I think even worse for Asian American women they face what we call a double-paned glass ceiling or a double-paned bamboo ceiling where you have that ceiling at the top, but you also have that ceiling down below where people view the lack of women in leadership as being more like a personal trait than Mm. systemic Mm. racism or structural in nature. You know, there's a stereotype that Asian American women are passive and submissive. And so when... We know that when people don't fit the stereotypes that individuals have kind of internalized about them, that they tend to try to relegate them back to that status. And so we have a phenomenon where we feel like Asian American women are often kind of squashed down to subordinate positions. You know, can you be a team player rather than oh, we see you as a professor, we see you as a supervisor, we see you as a department chair things like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the, the stereotypes and there are, are numerous ones, including like, oh my goodness, Asian people are so great at STEM. Right. And Asian people are great at this and Asian. And, and on the one hand, you know, um, folks are like, well, why would you be upset? Like <laughs> we're saying you're great. That's a stereotype, but it's a good stereotype. Right. Um, so on episode 30 of, I mean, on episode 80 of this podcast, um, I did a show on the model minority, right? And kind of how um, uh, challenging it is for folks to kind of um, battle also that in addition to just regular old racism and and misogyny, right? Um, and so, you know, Tina, I'm really kind of interested in, in you know, what do you think about this and what, you know, barriers do you think there are to recruiting and retaining more Asian women in academic veterinary medicine? So that's a, that's a great question, Lisa. And I don't know that I have uh, the research necessarily to back it. I think a lot of my experience has been anecdotal um, uh, and cultural, like my, you know, my lived experience, Uh, you know, my, my parents, immigrated to the U.S. separately as adults. Um, 
My mom came here after uh, receiving her bachelor's degree at the University of the Philippines in accounting, and she's the oldest of 16. So there was a lot of pressure on her to um, to work hard and to give money back to the family so that the rest of the family could come to the U.S. And my dad was recruited to play tennis um, in undergrad. And so that's how he came to the United States. And um, I think that even now, there, there seems like there's still you know, the majority of the generations of Asians that I know in the U.S. that are in veterinary medicine are either ones that have immigrated here themselves or they are first generation. And I think there's a certain mentality that comes with kind of those generations of, you know, what are the career paths that are very highly esteemed, um, you know, within Asian cultures? And many times it's like the typical engineer, entrepreneur, uh, human physician, um, and I experienced that even with my own um, upbringing is that my, you know, my there would be family members that would say, well, why don't you become a real doctor? You know, veterinarians, yeah. you know, it's kind of a dirty profession. And, you know, the work, it doesn't seem like it would be, you know, very respected. And so even within my own family, I had to make a case for why this is a profession um, and then even within ac the academic setting, I think it becomes even more of a struggle because those that are accepting of the idea of being a veterinarian see it more as uh, the the hierarchy is, oh, if you're a practice owner, you're an entrepreneur and or if you're an associate veterinarian, look at all the money that you're making. And then you compare it to academic veterinary medicine. And there's always then there becomes a question for me that I get which is why, why, again, why are you not a real veterinarian? Like, why don't you make more money? And um, why would you want to, you know, be in an academic setting all the time? And so I think that's the struggle that I have felt um, and that I have seen it with some of my um, Asian American um, colleagues is almost having to justify our existence, um, you know, to family that are uh, wanting to be supportive, but maybe don't necessarily understand mm -hmm. um, all the rationale behind the decisions that we make. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you also mentioned that that um, this phenomenon and I, I see it in this profession as well. And I've worked for other health professions and I don't see this phenomenon and those. And that is, oh, you're not really a veterinarian anymore because you're doing X, Y and Z. And, you know, I, I'm always like, but like it's the degree right not just what you're doing um and it's like if you're working in organized veterinary medicine you might get a pass right like that's still usually because you're volunteering right and so although there are certainly of course a lot of people who have full-time employment and that's type in that type of practice area but you know this profession really does cast out and it's really interesting because i do also see a kind of enhanced tossing aside, if you will, for individuals with marginalized identities within the profession. It is, um, it's almost seems easier for folks to say, oh, that person isn't a veterinarian anymore. I'm always like, wow, the gatekeeping, interesting. But, but I digress. So Catherine, why don't you share a little bit about your experience uh, as uh, an Asian woman in academic veterinary medicine? Yeah, so it's, you know, it's been an interesting journey for me because I actually come 
from a background that's very different than what Tina just described. And I think that there's a tendency for a lot of people, again, to lump us all together into this sort of preconceived idea of where you are and who you should be. Um, and so I actually was adopted by a white American couple when I was about 16 months old and was brought to the United States at that point. So I was raised in a white household. Um, and this was in the, I'm going to tell you how old I am. Um, this was in the early 70s, right? And so there just wasn't a lot of appreciation for sort of connecting adopted children to their roots. And it was a time when there was a, a huge number of, of particularly Korean children that were being essentially sold out of country to couples who wanted children. Um, and so I faced this issue of people not seeing my face, but seeing my name and assuming that I'm white and then seeing my face and not making that connection and understanding that I am an Asian American woman. And, and that's that's been a real struggle for me in some ways, um, even since I was a child. And so, you know, I, I've even faced some discrimination in the academy and abroad with things like, oh, well, you know, I saw her name and I had a conversation with her on the phone and then I saw her in person. And I was so surprised that she didn't have an accent and, you know, things like that. <laughs> so, yeah, I do think that that it's and in academia in particular there, you know, there's lots of issues with being a woman. First and foremost, there are plenty of studies out there to support that women coming into the classroom just at the higher education level, don't have the same level of respect. They don't aren't viewed as the same level of expertise. They're not viewed as being as competent as their counterpart males. And then as you, if you come in as a, a female who is an Asian woman, it is sort of exacerbated by that. But it's really interesting because as you pointed out with this idea of the model minority, on the one hand, they don't respect us and they don't see us as authorities but or experts. But on the other hand, oh, you're Asian, so you must be smart. And so there's this really weird dissonance that occurs with people. And it also occurs with me because I, I grew up with a family that told me I was actually too stupid to be a veterinarian and, and a group at large that I didn't know who told me, well, you're Asian and you must be smart. And so those sort of competing things that were put into my brain from a very young age made it a lot more challenging for me to kind of navigate and then get into the academy and feel like I'm a confident person, feel like I'm the expert that I am. And I'm not, I am not a board certified specialist, much like Tina. Um, and so it was a little bit harder for me to get into academia to begin with, because I had to convince them that what I brought to the table was my 13 years of GP experience, knowing what veterinary students needed when they graduated, and also the fact that I knew the ins and outs of education because that's where my background was and sort of trying to knock down that wall too. So I think it might've been easier if I had not been an Asian American woman doing that, <laughs> but that maybe just be speculating. So I just wanted to quickly clarify, I'm not a boarded uh, specialist. <laughs> right. No, that's why I'm saying like you oh, and okay. I are more similar. I know Jeannie okay. is, but you and I had to kind of yeah. make our way into academia without that specialty certification, Got which can be it. even more challenging, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, you're muted, Lisa. <laughs> so, Jinyang, so Catherine, you know, started kind of the conversation about we know that there are challenges just writ large in higher ed for women, right? We know that, you know, there's the pausing and, and you know, stopping of the tenure clock um, to, you know, take care of family. We know that sometimes publishing um, can be really challenging. Um, so, you know, thinking that you all have 
that that experience just as um, folks identifying as women, but really kind of laying over your Asian identities, you know, tell, talk a little bit about kind of that unique experience. Like why, what is it about the bamboo ceiling? Sure, yeah. So I think for me, um, I definitely experienced what you're talking about, about the different experience of the man versus the woman in academia. And so I was part of a cohort of faculty members that started around the same time. We were three women and two men. And I did notice that some of the men who were hired were immediately welcomed into this little group, right? And so um, I know one with equivalent qualifications and years of experience immediately was invited by four separate established researchers into collaborations to the point where he was turning down collaborative speaking engagements, book chapters, you know, other research collaborations that colleagues had offered him right away. And to my knowledge, the three women who were hired at the same time were never approached <laughs> by any researchers um, for collaborations, speaking engagements, for anything else. Um, so personally, any opportunities that I had were self-made, right? Like you just kind of yeah. grapple through it. You try to find grants in your spare time. You beg and seek out collaborations. And I know there's data that supports that, that men are more likely to collaborate with other men. I think Sam Morello just wrote a paper that describes that, that um, men have also 50% higher odds of more advanced academic rank. So I've definitely experienced that where, you know, the woman and the man have a differential experience. But then comes the whole bamboo ceiling effect for people. And I I personally, I can't, I can't separate out those experiences, right? Like I can't ever say, what would my experience be if I was a white woman as opposed to an Asian woman? And I think that's the whole happy, having to navigate a happy medium between the two stereotypes. Like either, I think, I feel like in America, you're either the lotus flower, China doll, the exotic, quiet, and nice stereotype, don't disturb anything, to the dragon lady, the aggressive and unlikable persona. And that's quite a <laughs> difficult uh, medium to have to try to navigate rather than just like, can we just be ourselves in this, <laughs> in this, you know, society? Can we not just be assertive at the same time as sometimes that we are kind? Um, and I know you talked about the model minority myth. Sometimes I feel like Asian Americans can also be subject to, you know, that double paint bamboo ceiling. So sometimes subject to some level of racial resentment where some groups may feel like Asian Americans are unfairly competent in some ways, leading to some feelings of like resentment and envy and intimidation and just like you need to stay in this little worker bee section, stay in your lane. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Tina, any comments, you know, thinking about, you know, your own experience with the, the bamboo ceiling? Yeah, I um, well, I, I wanted to back up a little bit and talk a little about, um, you know, kind of refocusing for a minute on the gender aspect of it more broadly. And one of the things that I have experienced is that um, I, I have been on faculty at two separate institutions 
as somebody who is the parent of relatively young dependents, you know, like they're not college age and they're barely, you know, I barely have both of them into high school. And there are some challenges to being a woman and a parent um, when you're on faculty, as well as, uh, you know, if you're in a leadership or in an administrative position. I think one of the challenges, the push and pull, and clearly not just within academic settings as a veterinarian, but you see this in private practice and other settings as well, is uh, that there is an expectation for uh, faculty and administrators and leaders to participate and engage in programs and events that are happening on weekends um, after 5 p.m., um, sometimes during holidays, um, sometimes during the summer when that's the only time you have to take vacation as a whole family. Um, and then you're kind of put in this push and pull of, but if everybody else is doing it, what is the, how am I going to be perceived as a, a woman who is also a parent? Am I somehow going to disadvantage myself? Am I setting the people up behind me or beside me up for a stereotype, right? To say, oh, well, if she's a parent, then that's going to be her reason why she can't do X, Y, and Z. And so I think that, um, you know, feeling some of that pressure early on in my academic, you know, in, in my career in academia, I have made decisions to say to my husband, my partner to say, can you go with the kids to their band concert tonight? Because I have to go to this awards ceremony you know, I'm not presenting, I'm not receiving anything, but the expectation is I'm there from start to finish. Yeah. And um, I have to represent the the um, the vet school. And so I think, you know, the parenting piece of it, I think is an important piece when we think about what are the barriers to women faculty coming in and feeling supported, and that this is a place where they belong and that they are a value add. Because, you know, the other interesting piece of this is that there are larger, larger numbers of women that are entering veterinary school that not only are coming in with children and dependents, but they are having children while they're in veterinary school. And so to be able to demonstrate that within your faculty, you have those individuals that they can look at as role models, I think is really important. Um, and I think that it's something that I am very cognizant of so that I, I feel comfortable that I'm in a place now where uh I can be more open about the fact that I'm trying to navigate parenting as a faculty member, that there are some decisions that I have to make that go one way or the other. And I think that's important for the students to see and for the other faculty to see as well, that they don't need to hide the fact that they um, have a life outside of, of work. Um, when I think more specifically about Asian uh, faculty, and I think, Catherine, you kind of talked about this, but I read another study that was kind of similar and it, it makes me think about what are the challenges within the promotion and tenure process, um, specifically for Asian women. And there was a study I read and I tried really hard to find it, but essentially what it comes down to is uh, the bottom line is that, you know, if student evaluations are utilized in the promotion and tenure process and are heavily looked at, one, there's a very subjective piece of this, right? And then there's the piece that says, uh, if we are not the lotus flower, and we are seen as the dragon lady, um, then it shows up in the student evaluations. And so it's not about whether or not the students met their outcomes for the course. Um, it's about the personality of that individual and how they're perceived by the student. Yeah. And then how does that play out in the PNT process? And so those are the things that I think about too, is what are our opportunities 
to make sure that those that are in positions where they're on P&T committees, where they are serving as mentors, um, how can we make sure that they have the information so that they're taking those things into consideration? Or how do we uh, reinvent the P&T process so that there's more of a balance of, of considering those things against things that are more objective, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. Sorry, that was a lot. No, I mean, and there's so much to unpack. And thank you for 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 sharing a lot of that. And so, you know, it it, it this seems like a good time to bring up a little bit of extra data from um, you know the um, American Association of University Women, right? And so, to your point, you know, some of the data that they um, have talks about seventy percent of male professors actually have children, but only forty four percent of female professors, tenured professors have children, right? And so, you know, yeah, there's more when, again, society is like, well, these are the folks that really kind of handle that. So I'm going to go off, write all the papers, right? The other piece of this is that during kind of childbearing years, those kind of, you know, 30s, let's just kind of put around there, like 20s, 30s, you know, hey, hey, 40s for the geriatric folk out there, because that, apparently that's what we're called now. And so, like, great. Um, but we know that that block of, you know, 20 years or so is also when there are the most opportunities for folks in academia to make progress, right? Like, and to move up that tenure ladder, that's when those advancement opportunities are more likely to be presented, right? And, and you know, Jin Yen, what Jin Yen was talking about how, you know, you're getting passed over for these opportunities. Everybody else wants to collab um, and you're not getting a collab. And so I think that it's really important for listeners and viewers to really kind of get that this is an intersectional issue. When we talk about intersectionality, this is the type of situation that we're talking about. And so, you know, here are some amazing kick-ass women, but because they're women identify as women, there's going to be this piece there, that glass feeling, right? When you overlay another marginalized identity, such as being Asian, then you get another ceiling. There's another ceiling, right? And so um, and so, some of those opportunities get missed. Um, some of those folks get looked over. And, you know, oftentimes we end up kind of having uh, these moments of kind of internal reflection. Okay, so was it, was it the gender thing? <laughs> was it the ethnicity thing? You know, those types of questions become top of mind, um, you know, when when we kind of start reflecting on careers and those types of, of, of things, right? Um, so, you know, you, you talked about having to make some of those tough decisions, Tina, and I think that um, I think that a lot of folks really probably relate to that. Um, the other thing, uh, so Catherine, you know, we talked a bit about the, the model minority and also this um, the the stereotypes specifically about Asian American women, right? This the China doll, the dragon lady, all of these types of things. You know, um, how much do you think that plays? And again, all of this is it's kind of I'm essentially asking you for a made up number, right? <laughs> Make up a number like like this intersection of 
frankly, oppressed identities, you know, how much of that do you think really kind of is it impacting, um, you know, women faculty, Asian women faculty, you know, women faculty of color? A lot. <laughs> um, I, you know, I don't know that I can quantify it. I think um, I think I would like to point out that there is there is a movement, which I think is great to really sort of establish more research and more evidence to support that this is a real phenomenon and not something that we're making up in our own minds and that we're just angry and bitter because we didn't get this or we didn't get that compared to somebody else, because I do think there is some of that. Um, and I also think that, you know, one of the things that's particularly important as an Asian woman and an Asian faculty member is this. So you've got these two dichotomies of the dragon lady and the and the lotus flower. But then you also have the sort of this in between section, which I feel like oftentimes I find myself feeling smack dab in the square of which is invisibility. Right. So you're not black. You're not white. You're not Native American. You're not any of these things. But you're clearly because the model minority is still really successful and you're really smart and you're you're able to do all these things. And so you're sort of left out of this idea that you need the support and that you need the mentorship and that you need those models who are above you to help you grow. Um, and so I think, you know, from the perspective as an, uh, of an Asian woman in academia, that's been one of the things that I've fought with more than anything is this this invisibility, this lack of acceptance. And then a real, and I'm sure, Lisa, that you've experienced this, a real uncomfortable, awkward interaction with people when I say to them, you do understand that I come from an underrepresented background, right? Like you do understand that my experience as an Asian woman with this color skin and this shape face and this shape eyes is very different than yours, whether you be a black man or a white woman or whatever. And um, and that is not to, to tell anybody that my experience is better or worse. It's just a very different one. And so I think from that Asian perspective, that is one of the things that I have personally really been challenged with is this invisibility almost of who I am and where I come from and the fact that I do actually represent an underserved population. Um, Cause I think it's much easier to see and it's, you know, it's easier to kind of face when it's sort of that dichotomy, but then you've got all that stuff in between. So, yeah. So back to the original question, I do think it impacts us quite a bit. I think, you know, when I, when I was interviewing for the types of position that I'm in now, um, I, I know, and I, and I don't say this very often, but I know that my resumes qualified me on paper far more strongly than the individuals who ended up getting jobs that I interviewed for that I did not get, that I do know went to either a white man or a white woman. Um, you know, there, there are obviously other confounding factors that could be potentially involved with that. I'm not here to say that it was only because I'm Asian, but I certainly think that that played a role and a concern about whether I would fit culturally, how I would be accepted, how I would be viewed. Um, and I am not a lotus flower. <laughs> I am not the kind of person who's going to stand off to the side. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure I'm quite a dragon lady, although some of my students might think that. Um, but, you know, I am assertive and I'm willing to speak my mind most of the time. And, and that makes people uncomfortable, whether you're a woman in general or, you know, you're a woman yeah. who has a different color skin. So, yeah, yeah I, I, I hopefully I answered the question. I think ultimately it's like I, I think it has impacted a lot of people. Um, and I do know that it's impacted me individually. Sure. And I mean, uh, thank you so much for for speaking to the issue of that invisibility, because I think that 
um, you know, we don't talk about that aspect of diversity much. We're usually kind of we're talking about identities. We're talking about how to be included. We're talking about how to be seen. But I mean, the opposite of that is invisibility, right? And we don't actually um, name that very often. Um, I was also, and I'd love to hear any of your thoughts on, um, you know, just the the term BIPOC. Um, I know I struggled with that particular DEI lingo when it became um, you know, more prevalent, especially in the last three years or so, because it's like, okay, so Black, Indigenous, and then it's like, and then everybody else, like everybody else. And so, you know, and and I still struggle with that. Um, and I, I understand the political reasons why, you know, there's um, Black and Indigenous individuals are specifically highlighted in this American term, but yeah. Hmm. Any reaction on the bottom? <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up, actually, Lisa. I I actually I have used that term. I don't feel particularly comfortable with it because I think it does sort of yeah. contribute to that invisibility, right? Yeah. Like you said, there's the black, there's the indigenous, and then there's everybody else. And even as Asian, we are everybody else, right? But so I was talking to a colleague of mine the other day about the fact that you know. Asians in some ways appear to be overrepresented in academia, but if you actually break it down by specific ethnicity groups, we're actually quite underrepresented. And so I was talking to her and she said something to me and I was like, well, here's the thing. I'm Korean American. You know, I was born in Korea, adopted into here. I said, there are 2 million Koreans in the United States. Don't tell me I'm not underrepresented in this country. And she was like, yeah, you know, when you put it that way, it's really different. And so yeah, thank you for bringing that up because I struggle with it too. I know I use it, but because it, it's kind of convenient, but um, it does sort of add to that invisibility of everybody else. Yeah, yeah. And Tina, I'd love to hear your thoughts as you know, uh, former president of Multicultural VNA. You know, again, that's another kind of language piece that is an umbrella. And I think that that. I do think that these terms are useful. I think that they can be helpful sometimes, um, but I also recognize that there is um, a, a deeply problematic side, right? It's, it's always six of one, half dozen of the other. So, you know, coming from, you know, MCVMA, any thoughts on, you know, that invisibility piece? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Catherine. I think that it is a challenge because when you think of the POC part of that, the people of color, we do all get lumped in together. And I think when I when I specifically uh, think about what does the diaspora look like within um, the Asian population and the Asian community, there's a huge amount of variability between the lived experience, uh, the amount of wealth, the amount of academic uh, uh, um, opportunity that are available to individuals that are within that larger Asian community. And so I think that's one of the things uh, that I think a lot about, too, is how can we disaggregate the data in a way that starts to get at the pieces, but then still keep some level of anonymity. And I think that that is one of the big challenges that I know MCVMA has talked about because we want the data, right? Like we want the data to see if we're having the impact in the populations and in the communities that we are intended to with our mission and our vision. And yet we continue by and large to be a population that 
our numbers are so small that it's not very hard. If I fill out a survey that is put out either by the AAVMC or the AVMA, it's not very hard to figure out that right. it's me. You know, yes. like if you think, okay, this is an Asian uh, veterinarian who is a faculty member who lives in this geographic region, who is this yeah. age range, like, there's not that many of us. Right. And so right. I think that that is the challenge is how do we, you know, until we can get to the point where we have critical mass, how can we, how do we recognize the fact that there's qualitative information in there that is important yeah. to recognize, like when you think about belonging and you think about, you know, what are the pieces of retention within an academic setting that are necessary for people of color? But then at the same time, how do you keep them? protected so that that information does not get weaponized. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a real challenge for sure. Yeah. yeah. And, I, you know, and I imagine all of this is really challenging. And, you know, I mentioned this at the top of the show that this construct of, you know, Asia, umbrella, Asian American um, representing 48 and counting countries, right? Um, you know, it's it's this kind of weird catch all, right? And And even then we kind of, struggle, I think a lot of people struggle to to really get their head around who's included in that, right? And so, for example, you know, uh, Sravia Polisetti, who is helping to produce the show, she's in the background, she's Indian. Guess what? Still Asian, right? <laughs> she doesn't look like you guys. Like she, like, she doesn't look anything like you all, right? Darker color, from a different region, all of these kinds of things. And I think that um, Ironically, I think that that also contributes to some of that invisibility because it's like, okay, well, there's not, what is, what is the thread, right? That goes through 48 countries. Um, and, and it's sometimes it's like, well, it's landmass. Okay. Well, no, it's, there's islands. No, I think it's like, you know, okay, we're going to just mush these things together. And, and I do think that it's, um, it's really challenging for folks to kind of sit down and really process and think about how large and diverse um, this population is. Um, and, you know, um, we are starting to see more Asian Americans in pop culture and TV and movies and all of these types of things. But again, those representations tend to be very narrow. They are not um, representations that are inclusive um oftentimes of far more brown people they are also not particularly inclusive of countries that aren't known for being you know for fulfilling whatever stereotype that country has right um and so these are all things that are kind of in the back of our minds just operating along with all the other crowds in the back of our minds um you know all those kinds of things so that was my own kind of little off-topic riff. So, so um, you know, I, I also mentioned at the top of the show that um, Asian American applicants and students are um, one of our largest growing uh, populations in the applicant pool and enrollment. And in fact, enrollment has reached parity for the most part. However, again, we're not talking about the diversity of, um, you know, Asian identities. Um, also, I think it's important to note that most of those applicants and then subsequently students are women, right? Because we're at like 
now of women. So, you know, thinking about that, Jinyan, you know, what do you see as kind of um, the future of recruitment and and what role you and your colleagues and certainly many others um, can play in kind of, hey, like you can do this, but also maybe recruiting some of those folks to, you know, into to, to internships, residencies, and hopefully academia. Yeah, I think it's good to hear positive news and you definitely have access to a lot more statistics than we do, right? Like the last, I think I kind of checked around and I saw in the 2019 stats that I believe that about 6% of the population in the U.S. right now is Asian American. And that's about the same proportion, 6% that are the vet school applicants that are Asian. So I think that's that's good news, right? Like having having some parity there is always good news. I think. Um, you know, maybe something playing a role in that is that Asians are the largest group of immigrants in the U.S. and many of them immigrating are highly educated. So you're looking at a certain group of Asian college students who are first or second generation immigrants. And so that plays a role for sure. Um, You've touched on the diaspora a lot. And, you know, it's important to note that there's a huge range in experiences here. We've got from, I believe, Bhutanese Americans are the low, the most impoverished group in the U.S. And so you've got this huge range here of experiences. And when you dive down, as we've kind of mentioned already, is that experience and is that proportion actually proportional when you look at the different ethnicities? Probably not, likely not. Um, but I think for me, if we go back to that idea of the bamboo ceiling, I think if we don't fix some of those biases and the barriers that we've talked about today, even if we have, you know, a good number of Asian Americans entering vet school, we're at risk of still maintaining that status quo of here's a lot of busy worker bee Asians in the workforce, but no, we're not going to see any representation in the form of full faculty, full-time faculty members and even less leadership. And so I think it's really important that even if we make progress on one end, that we look at the end goal and we say, you know, we remove those barriers to leadership, to advancement. You know, we allow that success to be attained no matter what your intersectional identity is. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thanks for that. So, um, We're moving towards wrapping up, but I want to ask each of you, um, what change would you like to see in the academy, right? What change would you like to see? And, you know, Jinyan, what change? What would you like to overhaul? We actually, we talked about the tenure process a bit, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I would say that I think that there are barriers for junior BIPOC, and we're going to use that term, faculty that are inherent in the tenure process. To me, there's two levels of that. There's the fact of the composition of the people who create the tenure criteria and uphold the tenure criteria, right? Like there's a certain group of people who are the leaders, um, often white men, often white women, who have created the process and then uphold it by being the majority of the committees that are in charge of promotion and tenure. Um, 
you know, like for example, at my institution, committees require gender representation. They don't actually go beyond that. There's no reflection of racial diversity. There's talk about requiring bias training for admissions, which is wonderful. And, you know, it's something that AAVNC and AVMA have worked very hard on. Yet, I don't see that same criteria being applied at the faculty level. Like, I, I don't see bias training ever even being mentioned for faculty PNT committees. Um, in the, and then I think if you look at the process itself, there's bias inherent in any any process where you ask for recommendations. Like you're asking for evaluations by peers, by colleagues. You're um, inviting review by peers, by people who already have tenure. Essentially, I think anything that requires some level of popularity and personal opinion is always subject to some bias, including the model minority myth, the overload, you know, all, all the different bamboo ceilings, the stereotypes that we've talked about today. So for me, as the PNT process, I think, you know, I am a tenured faculty member, but I still can fully recognize that that process, I think, inherently is flawed. Yeah. All right. All right. Catherine, what would you change? Oh, my gosh. You want the top 10 list or just the, the one? Um <laughs> So I, I love what Jeannie said, and I 100% I agree with that. I have I've chosen to go non-tenure track for a number of those same reasons, um, which is a whole nother conversation. But I think as I consider my response to this, my response is really probably encompassing a much bigger system issue, which is, again, kind of touching on that idea that Asian is this huge group of people. And I think that oftentimes people say Asian and they think Chinese right? They don't think Indian, they don't think Pakistani, they don't think Bangladeshi, don't, they don't think Korean, they don't think, you know, Japanese, they think Chinese. And, and, and that's great for the Chinese in some ways, not so great in other ways. But what that does is it again provides this sort of single wall that says all people who are Asian look like this, act like this, are like this. And then really leads us to an over-representation in the statistics, because if if we're representing 48 countries, then obviously there's going to be some overrepresentation. And as I said before, there are only 2 million Koreans in the United States. So I think if we're able to, and I know that even you and I have had some conversations about this, Lisa, if we could get the government to stop calling us Asians and give us opportunities to indicate what ethnicity we truly identify with. And I and, and I would say this is the same for the Latinx community as well, right? Yeah. Like they need yeah. to have an opportunity to identify. Yeah. Are they Venezuelan? Are they Spanish? Are they Colombian? Um, but that's really going to give us a truer number and give us truer statistics about who is and isn't underrepresented. And if they can do that at the government level, then that can then trickle down to the, the academic level as well. And we can maybe be a little bit less invisible. I was in a, and the reason I say this is I was in a conversation not too long ago about, um, we were getting some statistics from somebody about the number of applicants that were coming in for our um, program, for, for a program, and it was a research program, and they had broken it down by underrepresented minorities, and then it was underrepresented minorities without the Asians in it, right? Yeah. And I said, well, why did you do that? And they were like, well, because that's the way the government makes us report it, because Asians are overrepresented. And I said, well, you know, that's actually a fallacy, right? And then somebody that was sitting in front of me said, well, you know, we're not talking about academics because I had mentioned that we're tended to be underrepresented in academia. You know, we're not talking about people who are in academia. We're talking about students. Right. 
And that essentially shut me down. And in my head, I'm thinking, well, that's great. But if we're talking about people who are getting advanced degrees, we are talking about future academics. So you can't separate the one from the other. So ultimately, what I would like to see is that opportunity for us to identify with our specific ethnicities so that people can truly get statistics in a way that are meaningful rather than just saying all Asians are underrepresented or all Asians are overrepresented. Um, and, And the same way with some of those other underrepresented ethnicities. Yeah, thank you for that. And yes, that is um, uh, a real issue in the health professions, even when I am, um, you know, doing some comparative work with my colleagues at other health professions organizations, their data, we're one of the few health professions education organizations that actually collects any data on Asians in academia. Um, you know, we we share building with AAMC, they don't collect that data, right? And then then we kind of are like, oh, but, you know, there are only two Vietnamese people and like this three schools uh, across these three schools. Right. And so, um, you know, it's really um, uh, a fallacy. It's really um, confusing, I think, for a lot of people. And it sends um, a really challenging message because then, you know, when when new faces show up, it's like, oh, well, yeah, we still got enough. We're good. Right. And that's just not okay. So last but certainly not least, Tina, what would you just throw out or bring in or overhaul or what would you do? Uh, Well, I don't know that I can add a ton to what Catherine and and Jean Yin have already said, because that was a lot of of what I had in my head. Um, But I, I guess if I think about kind of looking at it, not from the system wide, um, place, but, you know, what can the individual do? Like, what is the responsibility of the individual to advocate for change? And thinking about, um, you know, we don't have numbers. We don't have numbers of Asian uh, American faculty, uh, men, particularly women. And so what are the opportunities for those faculty to then serve as mentors, to serve as allies, to serve as sponsors? to to help break down some of these barriers because they oftentimes have the ear of those that we don't have, uh, we're not in those spaces, right? Uh, Whether it's leadership, uh, whether it's certain academic uh, specialty organizations, whatever it is, I think, you know, what what is the opportunity for those that don't share our identities to be able to help us to get into those spaces and to, to, you know, use their, uh, like their social, their um, their professional connections and networks and influence mm-hmm. to help to help all of us, right? Mm-hmm. As a larger community, that's that's the piece I think about is because I don't want this to sound like Catherine and Jean and myself have to mentor all the Asian, fa- you know, faculty and all the Asian students. <laughs> because as much as I would love to, I think there is some responsibility, and Absolutely. it hits differently if that that same message comes from somebody else that doesn't share the same identities as me. So um, I think that's the piece that I think about too, is like, those are opportunities we, I would encourage other people to act on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a great note to um, end on like, so everybody else has got to step up. We have to do this together. Right. I mean, oftentimes when we talk about mentoring, folks are like, Oh, we need more mentors of color to do this. And I'm like, yes, I'm 
Obama needs more white folks in, in this room, though. Like, the, the numbers are just not number. The math is not mathing. If we only, you know, work with folks of color to mentor folks of color, like the, the, the math, the math is never going to math. Right. And so, you know, we really have to have um, um, the majority of our populations really kind of step up. So, yeah. Can I just add to that, too? Absolutely. When I think about mentors is we need individuals that have been successful in advancing themselves to then serve as mentors. Yes. And they likely have different identities as us. Yes. So and sponsors. Yes. And sponsors. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. So I just want to say thank you to my guests, Jean Yin, Catherine, Tina. Thank you so much for being on the show. Um, there's never enough time to have these conversations, but I'm so, so glad that you've joined me this afternoon. This has been another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. To my guest, again, thank you for joining me. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Um, we should be on your favorite podcast app. And be sure to follow us. Uh-